Hello everyone, it's Monday the 19th of October and welcome to episode 91 of the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, Ben Eagle. On the slightly longer than usual show today, we're talking agriculture on a big scale and what the impact of this might be on the UK. Don't forget you can always head over to YouTube to watch the longer versions of every Meet the Farmers interview. But we're going to dive straight into today's feature interview, which is with international agricultural consultant and farmer Robert Koval, who called me last week from his home in Moscow. It's This evening, we're talking agriculture on a global basis, and I'm speaking to a Lincolnshire boy done good who is now a global agribusiness consultant working on large-scale agricultural projects across Russia, Kazakhstan, Eastern and Western Europe. Robert Koval began life on a family farm in Lincolnshire, but moved into agricultural machinery distribution and then into large farm management, design and build overseas. He's now a consultant and a retained advisor on a number of large-scale agricultural businesses, principally across Kazakhstan and Russia. And it's Russia where Rob is speaking to us from tonight. Rob, thanks for coming on the show. It's an absolute pleasure having you here. My pleasure, Ben. I'm really looking forward to it. Brilliant. Well, you're speaking to us from Russia tonight, but you don't spend all of your time there. Um, I wonder if you can start by just giving listeners a flavour of the travel that you normally, <laughs> dare I say it, um, do each year and, and the air miles that you rack up, but also perhaps how that's changed with, with Corona. Yeah, I mean, um, when you are a mobile consultant, I, I'm I'm not a big fan of the word consultant. I still I still sort of cling desperately to the farmer name, <laughs> I rather than I do consultant. But um, yeah, when you're a mobile consultant and suddenly you cannot be uh, mobile, then obviously the world changes dramatically. To give you an idea, my average number of flights the last Three years is somewhere between 130 to 150 a year. Um, I suppose in terms of miles covered, that would be somewhere between 150 and 200,000 flying miles a year. In terms of, of time, you're in the air. Uh, according to my wife, bless her, who actually records this stuff for me, last year was 333 flying hours. So, And obviously that all came to a grinding halt in March, as with everybody else, when COVID hit, uh, it's yeah. a big change. I'm very, very fortunate. I have long-standing clients who have been extremely supportive, and I am able to do the majority of work. But this year, for the first time, I'm involved in one large project in Kazakhstan, and for the first time, I actually bought land, bought machinery, bought seeds, bought fertilizers, chemicals, uh organized the planting of a crop the training of a team of people that had never seen said machinery before yeah. uh and we started harvesting yesterday and um you know i've never seen it <laughs> that is unbelievable <laughs> and, and yet the world still works and yet the world still works and uh i can actually through the joys of modern uh gadgets i can actually log into the combine and watch how depressing it is and it's actually the main thing is it's not as pretty as we would like but it's above the number that's in the book so we're okay, okay. Such <laughs> let's focus on some of those uh, projects and some of your current project work uh, because i think that will 
best give uh, give listeners an idea of what it is that you're doing. Firstly, you're designing and building a new fully integrated farming operation with 25,000 hectares of irrigation and 8,000 hectares of dry land producing beet, potatoes and alfalfa. That's in Kazakhstan. Um, and secondly, mm-hmm. as another example, you're involved in a new Russian-Dutch joint venture focused on turkey breeding. Uh, and that's in Russia. Uh, can you summarize the kind of work that you're doing uh, for both of those ventures? The, our consultancy business is myself and my wife, and we mainly work on retainer for clients that I've been involved in for many, many years. In the case of Kazakhstan, they're actually a new client. I've been working with them for almost a year now, uh, but I knew some of their management team from other projects. So I sort of knew the people before, but that's a relatively new one. The Turkey project, I've been involved, actually that, the investor, the Russian investor behind that was my first client in Russia back in 2004 when I first moved there. And I've been involved with that company and that family behind the company since I first started involvement with them in 2002 and I moved out here in 2004. Okay, and so that, here that's we are, standard. 16, yeah. 16 years later, and, and I'm still involved. This particular project, uh, that that farming company, they farm around eighty thousand, no, a bit more now, but a hundred thousand hectares of uh, cereals, and they're producing uh, on the grain side. They're producing primarily wheat for export. Sorry, although right now the price is very high, so you can't complain at me and my various. Uh, friends that usually complain at me for polluting the the grain price in the UK. It's not my fault at the minute. Okay. <laughs> um, so you know their their main business is grains, and we built there a pig operation starting back in 2005. Today that's a, a 17 and a half thousand sow farrow to finish operation. So it's producing oh around 40,000 tons a year of meat plus minus and they have their own feed mill and their own slaughterhouse. They've just built a big new meat processing plant. Uh, they have a veg operation around oh, about 600 hectares of, uh, of tapes and onions and carrots. So it's a, it's a big ag operation. It belongs to one family who have been long-term investors in it. I've been pretty much everything with them. I've been a supplier, I've been an employee, I've sold product for them and uh, I'm now a retained consultant to them. Yeah. So, and, the J- and the JV in Turkey, it was an opportunity that came along. Um, we had some spare capacity in a feed mill and it seemed rude not to try and fill it. And we were fortunate to be introduced to some very good partners, Dutch, uh, Dutch group Hendrix. Unfortunately, in the minute, the project is is temporarily on hold because of Corona. Frankly, um, it's very very hard. We were supposed to start breaking ground on on building eight new farms on the first of April, and uh, yeah, that just wasn't really a good advice thing. Yeah, so, timing. but we hope we hope to restart before long. Mm. I'm interested, when you're faced with a new project, um, a new venture, do you approach it in a similar way or is everything different? Um, I think I, I, I probably the biggest difference, I, I spent quite a bit of time working for a bank and most of my clients are either high net worth or private equity 
or fund managers. And from them, I have learned over the years to take a much more financial uh, approach. You know, we are looking for return on investment where the, all of these people, frankly, don't know what farming is. Uh, they're not, they have an interest in it as an investment class. They might already be invested in it. They might be looking at getting into it for whatever reason. And so when I'm approaching it, you, you have to deal with what they understand. So the, the first thing and probably most important is the communication thing with the investors to get a clear picture of what they're actually trying to achieve. And, and for me, I love dealing with new stuff. Like most of us, we have our daily chores and our, our daily work formats and etc. Yep. We all have to go through those. Uh, but when you're, you are fortunate enough to come across something that is completely new, and really trying to change things that for me is is wonderful that's what makes you excited but, yeah I, I mean this is going to sound awful to your average farmer but you know i have clients with fleets of machinery with more than 500 units in it so i i, I struggle to get excited about shiny kit anymore uh, now if my wife was here she'd be laughing like that because she said, you know, <laughs> you're always looking at the ladies <laughs> whatever it is, shiny, faint, John Deere, case, whatever. Um, and I do like that. But at the end of the day, that they are a tool. And, and I'm more interested in uh, the product that the company is producing and yep. the markets that it serves. Yep. And frankly, the most interesting about all of these projects, I'm very, very fortunate to work with lots of different people from lots of different cultures who don't care that what you were in Lincolnshire or where you came from or, or they're, they're only interested in what can you do, you know, and what can you contribute to their mm. project. And you very quickly find out what you can and what you can't contribute. Unfortunately, there is, the, there is an arrogance in developed countries that says we know best. And, you know, I, I took some of that arrogance when I came overseas. And you need some of that arrogance to be successful here. Um, but at the same time, you ignore at your peril the local skills and the local knowledge and the local experience, even though you look at it and say, well, how can you have done that? We're bringing in 500 horsepower and you're talking about a, a 50 horsepower, whatever it is, may yeah. locally that you know, wouldn't, we wouldn't use to cut the grass in Kent, you know? But they'll turn around and say, well, yeah, but that thing only cost me 10 quid and it, it runs on five litres of diesel and yeah. it does the job. But for me, the, the, I, I have a very rich mix of characters that I work with. They challenge me every day and they make you think. If you use that knowledge and learn from that knowledge, you do pick up some extraordinarily beneficial things that, frankly, would not. Many, many years ago, I say many years ago, yeah, 15 years ago now, uh, I'd had one of those days where I just needed to retreat and get out of the lunatic asylum. And I went and sat on, on what was one of my favorite hills. Uh, this is in the south of Russia in, in an area region called Stavropol, which is one of the main exporting regions for grain and where I've spent a lot of time. And I just went and it's benefit of a beautiful climate. It's a Black Sea climate, so mm. I think Turkey. And I went and sat on this hill and uh, 
the guy who was the senior agronomist for the farm where I was working, he just drove past, it was on the farm, and he drove past and stopped to check I was okay. Yeah. And then he sat down, he said, what's the matter? And I said, no, nothing matter. I just need to, I just need 10 minutes to get out of it and defrost and detune. Yeah. He said, well, he said, you've got to remember, he said, you're looking at this land and he said, you look at this land like, land like you own it. Okay. Now this land has been invaded from every possible direction by every possible na nationality. Every single one of them has left. And you will leave too, maybe not tomorrow, maybe next week. Uh, and, you know, after asking him if he knew something that I didn't, but the general point there was I'm a guest here. Yeah. My trade is what's in my brain and what I've picked up as experience over the years and, and whether it will fit in there, but I'm a guest here. I'm not going to change politics. I'm not going to change people or whatever. It's my challenge to, to blend into their life, not their challenge to blend into mine. And, you know, there's, there's, there's things now, however many years down the road and however many hectares we've managed and developed, you can see where I've been. But at the end of the day, the people that I started with in each of those locations are still the same people because it's home for them. Yeah. You know, it's their Lincolnshire. I've helped to provide what I believe to be, you know, a better income stream or, you know, more sustainable jobs or a, a, a better agricultural operation. But materially, I haven't changed what, what's actually happened there, you know, from the point of view that they still have their friends and their family, and that's how it should be, you know. Uh, and that's been, at, at the time, I, I, when I was younger and less gray, um, I wouldn't say I was offended by that, but uh, I, it came as a shock to me. You know, I've been there a significant number of years. I speak the language, albeit badly, but I speak the language. I have people that I consider are friends. I'm married to a Russian, but I'm still the foreigner. I'm the Gaijan, and I always will be. And frankly, it's how it should be. Let's go back to Lincolnshire. Um, it's the county where you grew up. Um, you went to school in Northamptonshire. I'm interested yeah. in what you were interested in as a child. And did you grow up with a strong interest in agriculture or not? You know, it, it, I, I grew up in a farming family. Uh, my father was, was one of three brothers. Uh, he was the only one that married um, and I was the only offspring. So uh, I, I was very fortunate to be uh, the beneficiary of huge family love for agriculture like most farming families you know that life revolved around the farm and we were at the time we had a, a farming business in south links near bourne uh between bourne and grantham uh which was a very traditional 500 acre simple grain farm and we were growing at various times we were growing turkeys and bits and pieces we had a store cattle operation and my eldest uncle had a, a building operation, had a building business, et cetera. Um, but very traditional, you know, the, the two bachelor brothers were looked after by their maiden aunt and you know, cured hams were up in the kitchen ceiling and all the rest. <laughs> and as a kid, um, my father moved north to, to northeast Lincolnshire between Louth and Raisin. Uh, and they had a poultry operation, which at the time was broiler breeders, mainly on contract to people like what was Padley's then, Moy Clark today, and 
for Send a Chicken and various other groups like that. And it was a very successful business. You know, it had done, the family had done well. They'd made a few quid and, and the business was sustainable. And frankly, farming was breakfast and lunch and the board, the board meeting was over the breakfast table. You know, they'd yep. all gone out to work first thing in the morning as, as normal and they'd come back in for breakfast at nine o'clock. And uh, I was center and my uncle Frank used to make me a wage packet every week he would draw he, he loved to draw and he would draw on the wage packet what had been happening on the farm the week before so okay. you know my my half a crown or whatever it was that was in the wage packet came with this in the picture so i huh. suppose it was sort of bred into me um that said my father and mother were both very very keen that i should not be in agriculture Okay. They understood the difficulties of the life. They, you know, it was wonderful to have the nice home in the countryside and all the rest of it, but it was hard-earned, like all, you know, we all know about. So they did everything to encourage me to not be involved in that. You know, they sent me when I was 16. I went on work experience at Lloyd's of London, the insurance place, and okay. uh, you know, and. As a kid, all I was interested in, frankly, was cricket, hockey, and skiing, basically. Um, and I was very fortunate. You know, I, I did a lot of all of those uh, to a reasonable standard and had an awful lot of fun. And then I went away to university. Uh, and to, to Newcastle to do agricultural to economics. I, I started off with agricultural economics, and then I changed to agriculture and food marketing. And... I loved university life. It, it, I'm still very good friends with people that we were at university with. Yeah. But at that stage, Newcastle was famous more for alcoholic intake than it was <laughs> for any particular thing. And I'm reliably informed by friends who have kids there now or have just had kids graduate. Not a lot of change from the yeah. perspective. Yeah. Apart from perhaps the corona generation of students, who knows? Or well, maybe, maybe more so. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, nothing else to do. No, no. Well, we found, even though we were supposed, we had plenty to do, we still found plenty we shouldn't have done. <laughs> I always remember um, uh, my, my father and I shared initials. He rang me up and it was in the state long before mobile phones. And he, it was one of those, you know, when we used to do a weekly call and you would call your parents from, yep. from yep. when you were away at uni. And, and he answered the phone, which was highly unusual. And he said, oh, well, I got you. He said, first, I owe you an apology. And I said, why is that done? He okay. said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I've made the mistake. I opened your bank statement. <laughs> and, you know, you, uh, you know when you go, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he, he said to me, in the next breath, he said, how is it possible to spend that much in a month? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, my father had been very ill uh, with heart problems. Today, he would have he just gone in and had a heart bypass, and, and that would have been the end of it, you know. But in those days, it wasn't available. Uh, and he was getting progressively not good. He had eight or nine heart attacks, I forget now, oh, wow. uh, from from age 55 and I left university in the 
December. I didn't graduate. I left at the end of my uh, start of my after my fourth term. Yep. And I left university and went home to work because he'd reached a point where, you know, not so much could be done. Uh, and um, he sadly died in the following May. I was 20 at the time. Oh, and, uh, um, so he died the day before my 21st birthday. So for my 21st present, uh, we'd been planning a party and uh, some presents and some fun. And I got, uh, okay, on paper, a nice inheritance, but also an overdraft and 47 employees. Yeah. Uh, so that was sort of in at the deep end. And, and from that stage, whilst I would have changed the methodology of getting there, and one of the greatest regrets in my life has been not knowing my father as an adult, you know, not having that opportunity to get to know him as an adult, really, uh, and, not, and the opportunity to work in partnership with him. Uh, fortunately, my, one of my three uncles was still alive. One, uh, one of my two uncles was still alive and he became business partner and, and guider and, um, curber of my more extreme ideas, which is a wonderful thing. <laughs> every young uh, person should have one. <laughs> every young person should have one. And actually, I think one of the, one of the most beneficial things he, he was, he was genuinely wonderful about it because he, he, he had a very light touch uh, and um, he, he actually gave me the opportunity to do things and perhaps things. And he, I'm sure he was at home thinking, God, Jesus. <laughs> but he, he let me, he let me have enough rope to hang myself, but made sure he was there before I actually fell off the perch, you know? So that was that was a great experience. And if I could do one thing for my kids or otherwise in similar circumstances, to be able to to do that was quite a skill from an older generation. Yeah. So what was your driver for travel and to begin to go down the route that you ultimately went down into more of a sort of global outlook and, uh, and into agribusiness? I'd always I'd always loved travel. I'd always loved uh, different places and seeing um, different cultures and, and the country and the, and the agriculture for that matter, but just the difference of it. I, find, I, find, I still find it very exciting. Believe it or not, on 130 flights a year, I still find it exciting to go to an airport. <laughs> I actually hate the process of travel. I think if you talk to anyone that does a lot of travel, they they all universally hate it. You know the actual physical process of going through an airport. Yeah, is dreadful, and it's something I haven't missed through quarantine at all. The process of getting to the end and and being somewhere different is a different thing. So, um, I I it started out actually with um, I wanted I was looking for an egg collection system actually for our own farm. It, we'd been in the stage this was before all the latest auto nests and everything else. But we were in the stage where we were at manual egg collection and we needed to switch to mechanical. There was nothing at that stage in Europe, um, and I rang a friend of mine up who was he's now dead, bless him, but he uh, he worked in the American chicken industry and. Um, I said, do you know anybody who's got anything? He said, yeah, yeah, sure, come, yeah. So I went. 
Um, and I had uh, two weeks wandering around the south of America, which is where the chicken industry mainly is. And, and that was my first big, if you like, big business trip. That was 1986 or 87, something like okay. that. Um, I was, whatever I was, about 24, 25. Yeah. So rather more time ago than I'd care to count. Um, but went there, had a look, um, and did two things that were actually very strange for me. One, I actually bought a system for my own farm. And I, I also took the rights to distribute it. Okay, but, uh, the, but that wasn't planned. <laughs> it, wasn't, it really wasn't planned. And actually, if you, t- if you want to pick one thread through all of this, none of it's been planned. Mm. None. Um, if you'd said to me uh, in 1990, 91 when i sort of started doing this stuff fairly seriously started to travel for work selling machinery in the uk etc that by 2004 you'll be living in russia Mm. i was like nah you know Mm. um never gonna happen my my life and my career has been based on taking opportunities that have presented themselves to me i don't regret any of them and the main reason i don't regret is because frankly i can't change them you know yeah Yeah. yeah, i made a decision good or bad decision but i made a decision at the time to do that i mean there are are always driving factors you know um i had two daughters at expensive private school and you know the domestic business was not making what it was yeah driving factor i wanted my kids to continue to have a good education yep but I think it was um, most of what I do has come from uh, interest and being prepared to say, okay, let's have a go. Mm-hmm. You know, the worst thing that can happen is it doesn't actually work. There are things that I regret, but as a general course, no, I, I, I've been prepared to have a go and it's got me into the position where I am today. What was the opportunity that first brought you to Eastern Europe, to Russia? Um, And I'm interested in what was going through your mind at that time in terms of, I mean, yes, you were saying that you're you're taking opportunities, not really thinking about necessarily a long-term plan, but was there part of you that was thinking, oh, this has got a big step? Yeah, I think uh, I first came to Russia, uh, I went to, I went to work for a big American group in 98, uh, running their company called GSI, which is now part of Agco, but then was an independent business. And it was the world's biggest manufacturer of grain equipment, pig and poultry equipment, et cetera. And I was running all the European operations for them, uh, what they call EMEA, Europe, Middle East, Africa. Uh, And part of the territory was Russia. And at the time, if you think back to 98, this was at the time when the, the Russian economy was completely tanked. Um, you know, they'd gone through perestroika and then the collapse. And um, by 1998, it was at the period they never actually technically defaulted, but the, effectively the, the country was on its knees. Um, and I came here on a trip with my colleagues at the time uh, to look at what we could do in Russia. You know, it's a big physical territory. 
and we did the same. We went around all these countries that were were former or about to be or became for, uh, former CIS territories, so Ukraine and Russia and whatever. And we started looking at them. And when I came here, this place was, it was just extraordinary. You know, there was, they'd been through so much problem and so much pain and the places were literally falling apart. The seams, nothing worked, the roads didn't work. But there was this spirit and this gorgeous land. Yeah. I mean, this country does land really well. I mean, if you, <laughs> if you, if you don't know anything about Russia at all, and most people don't, they only know what they read on, on, on the newspapers, which is not a good story generally. Mm. You know, Russia has so much natural wealth and beauty. Uh, and I'm not retained by, uh, by the Russian tourism authorities or anything else. <laughs> Not that anyone needs a tourism authority at the moment, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's a huge country. It's physically huge. You know, you're talking about, uh, I think it's seven time zones and like 10 flying hours east-west, and it's like five flying hours north-south. So it's, it's, it's physically vast. You've got every conceivable mineral. You know, you, everyone knows about the oil and the gas, but the gold and the diamonds and the platinum and the earth metals and the everything else that's here. But the big thing for me as a farmer was the land. I have never seen. The first time I came here and saw this land, I thought, wow. <laughs> Uh, and and you've got you had an agriculture that was on its knees, you know, with with uh, because the bit that wasn't talked about after after the collapse of the Soviet Union was that you had the local collective farms, okay, and collective farms had a very bad name, but actually they were the most amazing pieces of design. You'd got these guys that were the, the head of the collective farm who was a very, very important guy in the local area. And these guys went from being state apparatchiks to self-employed farmers overnight. I mean, literally, poof. Yesterday, the state was sending you fertilizer and seeds and chemicals when you asked for it. Today, you've got to pay for it. Yeah. Now, the vast majority drowned. You know, they couldn't, they couldn't handle the circumstances. But there were some and some very, very extraordinarily good farmers that have made that through, and they're now controlling uh, vast farming empires that are, are good. But it was really the land that brought me here. Let's talk about big-scale ag generally. Um, so Beeswax Dyson... Uh, farming in the UK owns about 35,000 acres. Uh, that's across um, Lincolnshire, Oxfordshire, Gloucestershire. Um, and that's mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the largest farming operations in the UK. But you see operations on that scale a lot. So yeah. what do you think the UK could learn from operations overseas? And, and is, there, is there actually any, any line of comparison? Um, there's actually more comparison than you might think. And I think there's probably more to be learned in both directions. The, I'm a big fan of the of the Beeswax Dyson farm. And through through Twitter, uh, I got to know James Thompson, who's the you know, head of ag. And, and we regularly exchange usually crap about how small his farm is, actually. <laughs> I'm probably one of the few people that can tell him that. <laughs> big ag is often presented as a, as a panacea all the ills. Uh, and it's not. It's really not. Big Ag done well 
with the proper logistic and uh, everything else does do very well and can generate money, sometimes a lot of money. But more often than not, big ag fails. Why does it fail? Frankly, because above a certain size, things become very, very difficult to control. There is no substitute, however good, however much money is behind something. You know, in the case of, of, of beeswax, you know, they've got Dyson, who is not just committed clearly, but is publicly and in the press is committed. You know, the guy, guy's got some uh, some serious plans for what he's doing and so you can have but you can have all of the money on uh, on earth and if you don't have the farmer at the middle of it with his hands on the on the correct levers uh it's never going to work and you see we wrestle with different problems in big ag my biggest client's 350,000 hectares and yes you did hear that right blimey uh now that's starting to be a farm you know now he's got Sugar beet operation. He's got a he's got his own sugar beet factory. He's got a big chicken operation. He's got a lot. It's it's hugely complex business. But frankly, and yes, the the turnover and revenue streams are enormous. And there is a natural hedge, and you know he can buy his fertilizer cheaper, and he can buy this and that and the other, and his diesel is cheaper, and you know etc. etc. But he is dependent on several thousand people to be able to manage something like that you have to be super organized you have to have a a team that is highly motivated you have to have a team that has a clear understanding of where they want to be so big ag when it's done well is a thing of beauty like small ag frankly yep big ag done badly is much worse than small ag when it's done badly and takes an awful lot more turning around. Roughly 30% of my business is starting new stuff and 70% of my business is trying to put right what is wrong. And it's a hell of a lot easier to do the 30% than it is the 70%. The whole thing about what you have to design with big ag is actually the same as what you have to design with small ag. And that is simplicity. I am a firm believer that any ag that is complicated, unless it is run and the work done by the guy whose business it is, then it becomes different. Mm -hmm. But if you are employing people and you have to communicate that what what is going around in your brain and the master plan, uh, if the audience is more than one and you are the one, if it's too complicated, the message only gets through 75%. And every time it has to go another step, it falls 25%. It has to be simple. If it's complicated, it goes wrong. The, the key difference between small ag, or let's call it UK ag, ignoring beeswax, and maybe Bourne's and one or two other of these big guys. Yep. Uh, if, if you talk about, let's say, 1,000 acre or 500 acre UK farm, uh, be it a mixed farm or a grain farm or whatever, the key difference is agronomy and or uh, livestock management make a difference probably 60 to 70% of the performance, the financial performance of that business. In other words, if they get the agronomy right, more or less the grains farm works okay. Yep. If they get the livestock management right, the veterinary, the feeding, etc., 
if they, the genetics, if they get that right, more or less 60, 70% of the business is taken care of. In big ag, that number drops to 20%. The impact of agronomy on the business is probably 20%. The impact of livestock management, direct management of livestock gets down to 20%. 80% is logistics. And logistics is pure management. And when you are in a rural area in the middle of nowhere, to handle logistic management on a big scale is very, very difficult. If you think about 350,000 hectares, we're talking about, let's say it's a no-till grains farm. This is not a no-till grains farm, but let's just say it is. Yeah. You're burning probably somewhere between 20 and 30 litres a hectare of fuel. But 30 litres times 350,000 yeah. hectares is a lot of fuel. And you have to get it within four or five kilometres of, of each block of land. That means you need multiple fuel dumps, which means you need multiple people to let that fuel out, mm. or you need electronic systems to control that. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the prevalence of these kinds of units and, and the growth of them on a landscape scale, let's say that, where, where do you see the future of these kinds of units going? Are, are, are they going to be more prevalent or are they more like the big, big ones? Are they more likely to be broken up to a slightly smaller level? If you, if you take Eastern European ag, Eastern European ag has gone through an extraordinary change in a very short period of time. You know, it went from the collective farms, um, which more or less finished in 92 through 98, uh, there was then a period of four or five years where really there was very little agriculture at all. It was a disaster zone and the farms were trashed. You know, anything that could be sold was sold. So they sold the seed corn, they sold the, uh, they, they sold their bulls, they sold their best breeding heifers, <clears throat> anything that wasn't bolted down, they cut it up and sold it. You know, so buildings had the, the steel framework cut out of them. Irrigation pipes were sold for scrap, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they were literally destroyed. And then you started to see people coming in uh, late 2003, early through to early 2005. People started to come in and do things. Without exception, all of those people were from outside the ag industry. If it had been down to the ag industry, it wouldn't have happened because they had no money in the ag industry. So these were coming in from the outside. Primarily in, in the case of Russia, they were from the oil or gas industries. They put money in and started to put process and hired people like myself to, to start to put it back together again. Here we are now, 15 years later, 16 years later, they've got highly skilled, very clever, intelligent workforce. Russian. You know, there's, no, there's no room for the foreigners anymore because they've got bright, young things who have been brought up with this, you know, and they're, they're, they're doing a good job with it. Yeah. You know, like see, you look at the CEO, probably one of the, one of the biggest farming companies here, Russ Agro, it's a public company list, listed in London. They're just investing $2 billion in pigs in China. Mm. Okay. So these groups will get more and more massive. They've reached a point. They're not very efficient but they're supported by government subsidy but it enabled them after the sanctions came in here don't forget we wrestled with the sanctions you guys all sent yeah, um, you know so the sanctions that came in late 2014 2015 they've built 
a food industry since then. You know, milk milk number milk amounts have gone up. They're producing. I mean, tonight I've had a a, a basket of farmer product delivered to me, which has come from multi put together. There is a specialist farmer online website here that will deliver stuff to you. Okay. And it's great. You know, it, there, there was some very nice duck pate made from locally. There was some uh, various, very good quality veg and etc. Uh, etc. Et that sort of stuff is going on now and it's very much a, a, a part of um, of what's happening here. So will those farms get broken up? Not in the foreseeable future. They will get smarter. They will build their yield. Uh, the bad news of them for the West is they will become stronger and stronger in export markets because the domestic market, for the last five years, they've been concentrated on domestic market. That is starting to change. You know, the, the, uh, some of the Russian meat companies and the Ukrainian meat companies have just got export licenses or relatively recently. MHP, which is the biggest chicken producer in Ukraine, is now the biggest supplier of imported chicken into the EU. You are going to see more and more of these monsters that have been developed out there. Are they the world's most efficient? Not necessarily. Uh, will they become that? Sure, they will. If you look at where they started from in early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, and what they've built in, in 20 years, it is extraordinary. And, and these guys will appear in a market near you more and more, but they're going to be doing the bargain basement stuff. The opportunity for UK ag, despite the best endeavors of our politicians the last couple of days, the strength of UK ag is their location, their quality, the type of product that they can produce, and the short distance to market. And overall, you know, the UK public is wants to buy a welfare-friendly, high-quality, decent, decent taste, and it wants to know where it came from. It does not want to buy a chicken coming from fill in the blank. You know, everybody's worrying about chlorinated chicken coming from the US, but you know, it could just as easily be chicken coming from Ukraine or from yeah. Russia or, or China or wherever. You know, yeah, but they cannot do what the UK farmer can do. Putting that on a back foot as well, I mean, there's a great debate that Brexit has ushered in um, on a UK level um, on this. But what do you think the opportunity is for British Ag on a global level? Are markets abroad genuinely interested in that British provenance as an, as an idea? I never, never think yeah. that, that it supposedly stands for. I think I think this is where the challenge is, where the big gap in, in understanding. You know, I I made no bones about it. I I was very anti-Brexit. I I believe it was as a nation uh, a backward step. But at the end of the day, uh, we voted to make it, and we've done it. We've voted twice for it. So okay, that's it. That's the decision made. Now we have to live with it and have to work out how we're going to uh, challenge it and live up to the uh, the promises from the politicians, etc. You know, we all we all listen to our politicians, even though we sit there and look at the TV and go, "You're a complete nut," or whatever. <laughs> uh, but we all listen to them. We all listen to what Boris has to say or Michael Gove has to say. Well, maybe not Michael Gove, but you know what I mean. Um, we all listen to them. But frankly, we always seem a bit surprised when these people 
workers type. We we were a bit surprised that in the vote two nights ago we didn't get we didn't win the vote, mm-hmm. and that politicians changed their minds you know publicly and didn't have any compunction about changing and not upholding what they'd promised ten minutes before. Yep. Oh, now that was a real shock, wasn't it? <laughs> Come on, guys, wake up. They were never going to do that. If we'd spent half the energy that the NFU and particularly, God bless her, Minette Batters, who I think is an absolutely yeah. extraordinary woman, and yeah. we could not have anyone but But release Minette Batters on prospective customers. Stop trying to influence the politicians because you're wasting your breath. Mm. Complete and utter waste of time trying to influence our politicians because they can't be influenced. All they're worried about right now is saving their ass from the wrath that will follow on from Corona. They don't put a foot wrong because in our blame culture, they will be blamed, so they're trying to avoid that. Agriculture is so far down on their list, it's, it's, not, even on their, it, it's not even a pimple on their pimple. <laughs> so forget the politicians, put the energy into persuading customers, get your asses on the road. You cannot influence the market by sitting in Whitehall, sit in Paris, sit in Belgium or wherever is the target market. Traditionally, we've been very good at innovating and making things. I'm talking about food products. You know, you go into the average farm shop now. We recently took a a holiday in the UK, which we never do. (laughs) We we come, we visit, we see our family, friends, and we go to somewhere hot. This year, we came and we spent a month. We went to Wales. We had the most brilliant holiday, probably the best holiday we've had in years. Yeah. And the highlight of that was going to these small bars, restaurants, farm shops, etc. And the food was exquisite. Yeah. Gin. I, I pull into a into a in, into a, 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 a offshoot of the road, and there's this lunatic making some of the best gin I've ever made. <laughs> I nearly moved in with him. <laughs> and here we are in the middle of Wales, in the middle of nowhere, and I find a guy who's a championship winner of gin. Mm. So my point on this is, we have what we have. Brexit is upon us. The rules will be unfair. The politicians will do shit. So it is down to individual businesses to address their marketplace. Uh, I would love to tell you that the rest of the world is sitting here and saying, come on, UK, do your thing. But they're not. They're moving on and doing their own thing. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a place for UK agriculture at that table. There is. But we have to go and sell it. You have to get in front of clients. You have to uh, accept the fact that people are going to laugh at you and say, no, no, we'll never buy that. Six months later, they'll be buying hundreds of them. Mm. Now, we have lots of very successful entrepreneurs in the UK that have specialized, including myself in the past, of bringing stuff into the UK. Mm. Just change the mindset a little bit. And as as a farming nation, um, we have a huge amount to offer. We just need to get on with it. We've spent the last three years moaning and complaining that it's Brexit, it's not Brexit, it's this rule or it's that rule or it's the other rule. Okay, enough already. Get your asses out there and sell it. People will give you a hearing. 
if you then deliver what you have promised, they will buy more of it. Is it going to be easy? No. Are there going to be some disasters? Yes. Are there going to be financial implications for that to the agriculture industry in the UK? Hell yes. But we didn't have to vote for this, but we did. And now we're stuck with it. So we have to make the best of what's what. And unfortunately, on top of all of this, then Corona has come along and turned everything on its head. But out of disaster comes some bright lights. Always. Night follows day. Yeah. Uh, and the dawn always comes or it always has done so far. And I, I am the eternal optimist. One has, you, you have to be an optimist when you work so, in Kazakhstan. Yeah. Um, and I strongly believe there is a big future for the UK, but there will not be a future unless we get out and sell it. You've got a great story to sell. Uh, you have a phenomenal industry with some of the most extraordinary people in it I've ever seen. And one of the things that I miss most about being abroad is not being among a body of my colleagues, whatever you want to call them, my fellow industry people, yeah. who I think are, for, uh, are magnificent. The biggest problem with them all is they spend too much time looking up their own backsides and arguing with each other about what industry they're in and whether it should be Minette leading them or such and such leading them or this, that and the other. You've got great people there let them work and if you can't do it shut up support the people that will before we close um i wanted to ask you one question if you could give your younger self one piece of advice what would it be well, that's a great question never give up grab every opportunity like it would be the last one out there don't accept the status quo make sure you look after the people who look after you. You know, the ones that love love you, that you love, they might think you're a bit batty and, you know, you're a bit of an embarrassment at the Christmas party or the rest <laughs> of it, but we still love you to bits. Uh, look after them because when things go wrong, they will be the only ones there. And when life is good, make sure they enjoy a bit of the of the sweet smell of success as well. We always finish the show with the same two questions. Um, so I'm going to ask you these. Um, the first is, if you had a message for the public, and by that I'm meaning the great British public, I suppose, um, what would it be and why? I actually think this is a great question. I think it, it's something that, you know, it's very easy to give a glib answer to. But, you know, your average farmer in the UK if there is such a thing, and I actually don't think there is such a thing as an average farmer, I think they're all uniquely brilliant. Either that or uniquely crazy. I can't <laughs> quite make Or both. <laughs> or both. Yeah, I think you need to be a bit of both. Probably the, the biggest thing I would say to the public is you've got these fantastic group of people that do their very best in the middle of storm, tempest, financial ruin, challenges that would stop your average man or woman in the street without even thinking about it and saying, why the hell are you doing this? And they keep going back for it. You've got this group of people that want to look after the countryside that, that you all go in there and look and say, isn't this beautiful? And why, why have we not been here for the last 10 years? Me included, you know? <laughs> but support these people. Buy their product. Talk to them. 
give them a fair hearing and be proud and, and tell them if it's not good or you don't like it, you want a vegetable-based product or you want a meat-based product, just tell them. These guys are all entrepreneurs and they will do their very best to supply it. Just give them a chance. That's all. And, and your second one to the farmers. Yeah, yeah. Fi- finally, a message to farmers. What would that be? I did think long and hard about this. Uh, I, w- I would say the following. Look beyond your farm gate. Don't be afraid to dive off the perceived high board because you will find some water to land in. It might be a bit choppy, but have a go. See what is happening elsewhere. Don't believe just because your local discussion group or or whatever says that you're doing great. Don't believe that you are. Challenge what you're doing every day. And always remember that for every downside, there is always an up. I mean, I, I, I like to cycle and I like to run. I always moan like hell when I'm going up a hill in a bike. But at the end of the day, when I get to the top, there is usually a bit to go down the other side. And particularly when you're getting old like me, you know, that's a very welcome thing. And the same would apply with my running shoes on. Um, but for every downside, there is an up. Explore, adapt, because you're going to have to, because it's going to change. What's been there for the last 40 years isn't going to be there anymore. Embrace that change and earn the reward and damn well enjoy that reward that you get because you will have earned it. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. This is honestly um, no joke, and I don't always say this. It's been probably one of my favourite episodes, um, and there's so much in there that I'm, I'm sure lots of people will take away. So thank you um, for giving everyone your view, and thanks for coming on I the show. I'd like to give you a challenge to edit it. <laughs> I mean, you do. I'm now thinking I might turn this into a double episode because taking a whole hour off this is going to be a real challenge. Uh, but yeah, I'm, well, you, I'm, I'm like you. I like a challenge. <laughs> so, uh, enjoy it. No, ben, it's been a pleasure. And I've never done it before. And, and uh, it's been a real, a real joy. Thank you very much. It's As you can see, I didn't quite take a full hour off that, but I hope you've enjoyed this slightly longer than usual episode. Huge thanks to Robert Koval for coming on the podcast. Next time, we're heading to Ireland and I'll be talking dairy with farmers Paula and Pete Hines. I hope you can join me then, but in the meantime, have a great week and I'll see you next time on Meet the Farmers.